the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. Now Jesus in Luke 20 has repeatedly reached out to the religious leaders. They're trying to trap him, but he's trying to warn them and reach out to them and bring them into a place of yieldedness to God. But having done that with them not willing, being willing to listen, Jesus then turns back to teaching those who are willing to listen to him. And he starts at the end of chapter 20 by admonishing them to not admire the religious leaders and to certainly not follow their example. Instead, they need to follow the example of true believers, not by be blinded by all the glitter and all the gold. So how do we do that? How do we make sure we're not blinded by the glitter and the gold that we see at times? Because it is so easy to assume because something looks beautiful or because someone looks blessed that God's favor is there. But that's not necessarily true. We need to look at actions instead of appearance. And we need to understand God's plan by understanding the times. So chapter 21, Jesus has begun to instruct us on these things. Begin in verse 1. And Jesus looked up and saw the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow casting in thither two mites. And he said, Of a truth, I say unto you that this poor widow has cast in more than they all. For all these have of their abundance cast in unto the offerings of God. But she of her penury has cast in all the living that she had. And as some spake of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts, he said, As for these things which you behold, the days will come in the which there shall not be left one stone upon another. That shall not be thrown down. And so they asked him, saying, Master, but when shall these things be? And what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? And he said, Take heed that you be not deceived, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ. And the time draws near. Go ye not therefore after them. And when you hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified, for these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. You wonder, how the, why in the world would Luke include this little teaching on the widow with the mites with this big, huge chapter on end time stuff? How does that fit together? But it does. And hopefully you'll see that as we go through it. But we start off here in the treasury. This would be the court of the women. It says, he looked up and saw the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury. Now, rich men, it just means those who had more than they needed to live. These, they had an abundance. They had leftovers financially. And it says, he was looking up and as these men who had extra, were casting their gifts, their offering into the treasury. Now, the word there for treasury describes the trumpet-shaped large boxes that were there in the court of the women where people would bring their offerings. There were 13 of these trumpet-shaped offering boxes, and they were placed on the west side of the court of the women, the outer court. Nine of these boxes were for what you were legally bound to give. Back in the day, you brought in your crops, but you would bring 10% of your crops and you'd give it to the priests, and that would supply them and their families, provide for them, or 10% of your livestock, you do that. By this time, they wouldn't do that. They would sell their crops and then whatever that 10% of the sale was, they'd bring it and put it in the offering. So nine of them were for that, the things you had to give to God. 
four of them were for voluntary gifts. You know, you just wanted to bless the Lord out of your own heart. It's more likely that those four are what's in mind here. Jesus is here because Mark 12 tells us that after his confrontation with the religious leaders where they're trying to trap him and he keeps fumbling their traps, that Jesus came into this court and he sat on the opposite end from where the offering boxes were. He sat near the gate that led out of the court of the women into the court of the Gentiles. So he's at the opposite side of the room. And as he sat, it tells us he's in Mark 12, he's watching as people give their offerings. Now, why would he be watching? Like, why why would that catch his attention? Well, back then, it was common for big givers to announce their offering with trumpets. They would actually, all of a sudden, you'd see, and you'd see someone come in with their entourage, and, you know, like the three wise men come and lay down their gifts before the Lord. And that's just how it was. Can you imagine if we did that today? Oh, look, it's Mortimer. He's here today to bring his gift to the Lord. I know it sounds crazy, but that's how they did it back then. So, and I'm not saying that was the right way. We'd never do that here. I'm just saying that was how they did it. There was this big announcement. And so what's interesting is that saying Jesus just watches as these wealthy men are bringing their their big donors, are bringing their gifts, and he's just kind of watching. Nothing impresses him. But then someone comes in with a gift that does impress him. In verse two, it says, and he saw also a certain poor widow casting in thither two mites. Jesus watches these big givers bring their offerings, but then he notices what he's going to call the biggest giver in the room, this poor widow. Now, the word here for poor, it's not the normal word you would use for poor. It means to be in poverty because you lack the ability to work for a living. Why couldn't she work? She's a widow. Back then, when your husband died, you would become impoverished because women couldn't just go out and get a job. I realize that for, for some ladies, you know, as you get married, that maybe you might leave a career behind to raise a family or whatever. And if your husband were to die, that becomes difficult to find maybe a good paying job or whatever because you know you, you let, maybe you left your education or, or you left your career behind. That is a difficult thing that you may face in our day, but you can go out and get a job. Back then, you could not go out and work. When your husband died, if no one took care of you, you would become impoverished. She survived now off the charitable help of others. She comes in, in this impoverished state, with two mites as her offering. The mite was a copper or bronze coin worth about 1 128th of a denarius. A denarius was a day's wage. So take your daily salary, your day, whatever you make in a day, and divide it by 128. In our modern day money, that's about 50 cents. She's bringing a dollar. That's what she's bringing as her offering, a dollar to put in the box. When she goes and she puts her dollar in the box, this impresses Jesus so much that he felt it necessary to point it out to his disciples so that they could learn a lesson from it. And he said, verse 3, Luke 21, of a truth I say unto you, which means, guys, this is real. This is the real deal. I'm not lying to you. This is reality here. Because math-wise, it's not going to make sense. But this is real, he says, that this poor widow is cast in more than they, all the big donors, all the big donors gave. She is cast in more than all of them gave. Jesus gives a little bit of a greater insight here into this woman's condition. He calls her poor widow. The word poor is a different word here. The word poor here actually means to be completely destitute without the basic necessities of life. This woman, not only was she widowed and therefore in a bad financial position where she had to depend upon help from others, she had already lost everything in that condition. She didn't have a home anymore. She didn't have property. She didn't have any money left over, inheritance, income, nothing. There was nothing to sustain her 
at all. She was completely impoverished. And Jesus says she gave more than all these big donors put together. That's what that more than they all means a larger amount than everyone else. Now, again, you might be sitting there going, well, I'm, I know math pretty well. How could a dollar be a larger offering than all these wealthy people are giving? Well, it's simple because God doesn't measure offerings the way we often do. His math is a little bit different. Verse four explains why. Four, why? All these, these who gave the big donors, all these have of their abundance cast in unto the offerings of God. But she of her penury has cast in all the living that she had. The word their abundance means that which is left over. So these big donors gave when all their needs were already met out of what was left over from that. But she, it says, out of her penury, out of her lack of need. This dollar, as she's sitting there, her needs are not met yet. These guys, all their needs are already met. This is from leftovers. This woman, though, she gives when all her needs are not met yet. So she, out of her lacking in need, her penury, has not just in cast in this gift, but it's everything she possessed. That dollar was all she had to her name. She had no home, no income. She gave 100% of what she had. This woman literally could not have given anything more to God. Isn't that crazy? No one else, no matter what, how generous they had been that day, could give that. I need to point out here real quick, Jesus has nothing against wealthy people, nor is he speaking negatively about their generosity and charity. That's not the point here. He is pointing out what should be admired and imitated. Now you might be saying, admired and imitated? Am I supposed to give everything I have then? Is that what Jesus' lesson? No, 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 no. Remember, we're talking about how God measures giving. See, certainly this woman had to eat every day, otherwise she wouldn't still be here. So she didn't always give everything she had. The point was that this woman gave not because she had leftover money or, and wasn't sure what to do with it. She gave because she wanted to bless God, his servants, and his work. She gave, need to learn here, the lesson is not how much we give, but the attitude and the approach we have toward giving. You might be thinking, yeah, but wouldn't a large donor make a bigger difference in the temple construction that's going on right now or maybe providing for a priest's family? But again, that's not the lesson. God measures giving by attitude. And this widow recognized that all she had belonged to God. That's where giving starts. Recognizing that everything I have belongs to God. And she wanted the first help she received that day to go to the one who provided for her needs every day. And that is to be the biblical attitude. That is the biblical attitude toward giving. It's to be our attitude toward giving. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 with me. I have to confess, it's always awkward for me to talk about giving. I'm an employee of the church. I take care of my family based on the generous giving of others. But this is what the Bible has to say. 2 Corinthians 9 has a ton to talk about giving. Uh, Paul is addressing a specific offering that he was collecting for the poor saints in Jerusalem from the churches. Corinth was one of those participants, was a church that said, we want to participate in that. And so he's giving them some instructions about having it all ready before he gets there, blah, blah, blah. But the principle I'm trying to communicate here, can't do a whole Bible study on giving, is in verses 7, 8, and 9, primarily 7 and 8. So verse 7, it says this. There's lots of other principles here, but this is the point I'm trying to share here. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says how we're supposed to give. Every man according as he purposed in it, purposes in his heart, so let him give. 
Not grudgingly, in other words, oh, I got to give something to God that's mine, recognizing it's all his. Or of necessity, which means like pressure or compulsion. You should never feel that in your giving. For God loves a cheerful or joyful giver. Why? Why do we, every man's purpose is in his heart? Because God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. So there's, there's two thoughts in here that, that are given. First off, every man needs to purpose, every family needs to purpose what they're going to give in their heart before you see if there's any leftovers or not. Giving to God is never because I can afford it or because there's extra. Everything I have belongs to God. And every person, every couple should seek God about what he wants them to give. And then we're to do so regularly with a joyful heart. Here's the second part. Trusting that God will meet all my needs so I can accomplish whatever it is that he's called me to do. That's how giving works. That's how God wants us to give. Giving when you have extras is still generous. There's nothing wrong with that. But the lesson here is in our regular attitude toward giving. We need to plan and purpose in our hearts. People always say, what, should I, what am I supposed to give, Pastor? Well, and I say, you need to go to the Lord and figure it out. And then you need to be faithful and obedient to do it every, every time. Every time you get income, you just be faithful and obedient and do that. Some people call that tithing. The word tithing means a tenth. Whatever, you can call it whatever you want. But the principle is here in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Every man, according as he has purposed in his heart, so let him give. You make a commitment to God as you talk to him and deal with him. You have your relationship with him and then you be faithful to whatever it is you commit to him, no matter what. That is to be your regular giving. Now, if God calls, puts it on your heart to help somebody out extra, whatever, that's fine. Or you have extra and you say, Lord, I want to help somebody out with that. That's fine. But this is not what this is talking about. This is about giving on a regular basis. And I ask you this morning, have you purposed in your heart what you're going to give to God, whether there's leftovers or not? Because you need to, you know. Is your giving to God a part of your regular budget? It should be. Because that's the trait of a godly person. That's a trait of a godly person. 2 Corinthians 9, 9, as it is written, he has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness remains forever. That's a quote from Psalm 112. Now, if you read Psalm 112, it starts off by this. This is what a righteous man is like. Now, there's lots of things in Psalm 112 that says, this is what a godly person is like. But this is one of them. So I want to encourage you. You know, if you don't give regularly, and I don't say that because you come to our church, I would say that to anyone. If you don't have something you've purposed between you and the Lord, and you're not being faithful to do that, you need to do that. Because it's what the Bible tells us we're to do. It's what a godly person does. We go back to Luke chapter 21, and he's given this lesson about giving. And again, it may not seem to mesh with end time stuff, but we'll get to that in a second. Now, at this point, after he gives this lesson, we know from the other gospels that Jesus and the disciples begin to leave the temple. But as they're leaving, some of the disciples remark how beautiful the temple is, which sparks a second conversation. It says in Luke 21, 5, and as some, and again, Mark 13 tells us it was one of the disciples, as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned, beautified, decorated with goodly stones. The point in time, the, the temple was still a work in progress. It wasn't complete yet. Wouldn't be complete till 65 AD. 
the columns of the temple, they were enormous, some over 40 feet high. If you go to Israel with us when we take our trip, and you're all welcome to come. But if you come with us when we take our trip, we haven't planned it yet, so don't feel like you missed something. When I, my health gets a little bit better, we'll, we'll start making some plans for that. But when we get there, you're going to see some of this stuff over there. You're going to see the beauty of it and the size of it and the enormity of it. The marble blocks, the beautiful marble blocks that the temple was constructed with, some of them were over, weighed over 100 pounds. It was beautiful. It was massive. It was definitely awe-inspiring. It mentions here these goodly stones, beautiful stones, and gifts. The word there, gifts, refers to voluntary offerings. All those beautiful marble columns and stones, and there was uh, the gates of the temple were were all made of gold. They were of a vine with grape clusters, and those grape clusters were the size of a human being. That's how big and beautiful these gates were. Those were all, the word gifts here means voluntary offerings. They were gifts, things that were possible because of gifts made from large donors. So there is a sense here where the disciples are walking out and they're going, I don't know, Jesus. I mean, that widow, I understand your point, but her gift wouldn't contribute a speck to this project of the temple construction. Surely all those other people gave more than her. Look at what it's accomplished. And that's where these two tie in. Because the question is, who's right? Them or Jesus? Well, look at what Jesus says in response. As they're making these comments, kind of going, I don't know, Jesus. I, I, think the, I mean, I understand the lesson of the widow, but, or they think they do, but these guys made all this possible. And Jesus goes, as for these things which you behold, and the word there means to just kind of staring at it, just in awe. They're still looking at it. These things you're looking at right now, He goes, the days will come in the which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. When they did some of the excavations on the west side of the temple and they were able to carve out the area, you would go up and and you would go into the temple. There were many of those stones that had been thrown down. They're massive and you see them just smashed at the bottom of the temple mount. Everything came true that Jesus said. But they couldn't fathom that. Jesus, when he says this, this was like a bucket of cold water being dropped on them. What? Jesus is basically saying what they're giving isn't going to accomplish much. It will all be destroyed because of their attitude toward me. Judgment is coming. And that's what I've been warning everyone about. That's why I pointed out the widow's offering. Because Jerusalem is a facade full of unbelievers, not true believers. Don't be like the unbelievers. Be like the widow who put God first. Again, this shocked the disciples. They were there for the triumphant entry just a few days ago. They watched Jesus thwart the religious leaders and and their traps and the people supporting them so much so that the religious leaders can't arrest Jesus in public. Surely this wasn't going to end in Jesus' death. Surely the temple would be the center of the world like the prophets predicted and the rabbis taught in that day, right? But did Jesus ever teach that? He didn't teach that. Jesus, he's been spending the entire week Speaking of the coming destruction, as the disciples hear this, it's a complete disconnect and horrified by this idea of a temp, their beautiful temple being destroyed, all these gifts going for nothing. The disciples asked some questions about it in verse 7. And so it says, they asked him saying, Master, but when shall these things be? And what sign shall there be when these things shall come to pass? So two questions. Matthew 24 
lists three questions. Luke doesn't list the third because it's not a part of what he's trying to communicate to us. The gospel writers did not intend to include everything Jesus said or did, and not even necessarily full conversations in the moment. The Bible says in multiple gospels that if everything were recorded, if the gospels were just historical accounts of Christ's life, then there wouldn't be enough books in all the libraries in the world to hold everything. They were selective because they're trying to communicate a truth. Matthew, speaking to Jews about Jesus being the promised Messiah, he includes the entire Olivet Discourse. Luke only has portions that would apply to his audience, Gentiles, and Theophilus in particular. He doesn't include the whole thing. So here he only lists the two questions that he wants to cover. They did ask three, but he only includes the two because that's all he wants to cover here. The two questions are this here. When shall these things be... And, and it's funny, the way it's worded, it says, but when shall these things be? The word but there means, so if that's true, then so they're not on board yet, okay? They're not on board yet with this idea of the temple being destroyed. But if that's true, Jesus, then when shall these things happen? That's the first question. And what sign, the word sign means an event regarded as having special meaning. What special event will occur to clue us in on when it's close, when it's about to happen? When will the destruction of the temple occur and what special event will be a signal that it's about to happen? Now, Jesus' response is so interesting because he doesn't answer their question. He says, take heed that you be not deceived. For many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ. And the time draws near. Go ye not therefore after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified for these things must first come to pass. But the end is not by and by. The first thing Jesus tells him, he goes, they ask their question about the end times and judge the final judgment, destruction of Jerusalem. And Jesus basically goes, you know what? Lots of people are going to get this wrong. Lots of people are going to get this wrong. So don't be tricked into following their ideas. Jesus does begin to answer their question in verse 10. But this is not the answer to their question. This is a warning. Jesus gives this warning after they've left the temple and they are on the Mount of Olives. This is why it's known as the Olivet Discourse. You can find it in full in Matthew 24 through 26. It is all the details are there. Again, Luke only includes a small portion of it. So let's start here with the warning. He says, take heed, which means you must watch out for this, which means Christians are probably going to ignore it. Seriously, every time you find something in the word that says, take heed, beware, you can find error in the church somewhere on it. So, Take heed, <laughs> beware, have your kind of binoculars on for this one. Make sure you don't get fooled by this, okay? That you be not deceived. The word there means to be taken off the right path, to wander off the right path or to cause to wander off the right path. So how will people try to lead us off the right path on this topic? Well, he says they will come in my name saying two things. Either I'm the Christ or the time draws near. So he says, there will be many that come in my name. There'll be a large quantity of people who will claim allegiance to me, but two other, two other things they do will show they're not, they don't have allegiance to me. They have their own agenda. The first one is claiming that they're, or teaching that they are the Messiah. And that seems like an obvious no-no. We see people go, I'm the Messiah. You go, okay, I'm done. Uh, I mean, that's kind of an obvious no-no that that's not gonna be a good teacher. But the second one, is teaching that they know the time of God's judgment in the last days and that it's now. The word draws near actually is in the perfect tense, which means has drawn near. It's already here. So 
Two signs of false teacher on end time stuff. One, they will say, oh, it's already here. We're already in the tribulation. You know, we're in it now. You know, or it's already here. End time's here. Judgment's here. Final judgment's here. Or they'll claim to be the Messiah. That's how you can tell they're a false teacher on end times material. Now, you might be saying, but wait a second. Didn't John the Baptist preach that the kingdom is here? That the, the end is here? Yes, he did. Didn't Jesus preach that? Yes, he did. The difference is that both of them were commissioned by God to do so. There is nothing in Scripture that says God will reveal to someone when the last day's judgment will occur until two prophets come onto the scene during the tribulation, the two witnesses of Revelation 11. There is no other promise that there's going to be some new revelation about that we're in the, we're in the end times. We're in, in the judgment day. We are in the tribulation. Or Jesus has come back. Jesus has returned. There is nothing in Scripture that says God will send a prophet to do that. So when someone says that God has revealed the time of the end or that they're his end times prophet, it's a clear indication they're a deceiver. Now, I bring this up because pretty much every major cult falls into this category. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Science, the beginnings of the Seventh-day Adventist movement, all these movements have, cl- have had leaders who claimed, I am God's end times prophet with new revelation about the return of Christ. That is a dead ringer to go, ding, 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 bad person. Do not listen to their teaching. Their founders would claim to be end times prophets or prophetesses with new revelation on the return of Christ. Can I give you a, a strong exhortation? We don't need any new revelation on the return of Christ. We have everything we need to be ready for the return of Christ right here, right in this book. Everything we need. You don't need special websites. You don't need special YouTube channels. You don't need special blogs. Everything you need is right here to be ready for the return of Christ. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.